The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded live on Wednesday, October 6th at Capital Weekly's conference on California's mental health crisis. Our speaker for this episode will be Senator Susan Talamantes Eggman. She is introduced today by your regular Capital Weekly podcast host, John Howard. Uh, and before we get to our program, I would like to thank our sponsors of the conference that we held last week. Uh, foremost, Kaiser Permanente, our gold sponsor. Also, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. They are a regular podcast sponsor as well. And also, KP Public Affairs the Western States Petroleum Association, Capital Advocacy, California Building Industry Association, Lucas Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Pandora, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, the Associated Builders and Contractors of Northern California, and the California Professional Firefighters. I want to thank them for supporting our programs that we uh, put on every quarter. And with that, I'm going to turn this over to John Howard, who will introduce uh, our keynote speaker. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, and welcome to the keynote portion of our health conference today. And it's my happy duty to introduce our keynoter as State Senator Susan Talamantes-Eggman of Stockton. if we had a list of people we wanted to chat about mental health issues from the Capitol with, I think um, Senator Eggman would be right at the top of the list. She has an extensive background in mental health related issues. She's had legislative packages that she has authored. Uh, her background, she had a bachelor's degree and a master's degree from Cal State Stanislaus and a PhD from Portland State University. She's on the, on the uh, budget subcommittee dealing with health and human services. And that gives her a vantage point, I think, with both policy and with the dollars. And that's helpful to us and helpful to anybody who believes in uh, trying to figure out some way of improving our mental health system, which she's pretty much dedicated her professional life to. Um, She is nationally known for her lead authorship on the legislation signed by Governor Brown almost six years ago to the day, today, allowing terminally ill people Um, the option of having access to uh, prescription lethal drugs to end their lives. They have that choice. Um, And one other thing we like earlier in the panel discussions, there was a allusion several times to a ballot initiative. So if that's something you're considering, feel free to talk about that all you want. We'll only tell a few close friends and the people viewing if that's still uh, in the working stage. So with that, Senator Eggman, thank you for participating and I will turn it over to you. Uh, thank you very much, John. Uh, it is my pleasure to be here with everybody today. Um, although I'm sure everyone's already remarked, it's odd talking when you, you can't see anybody but yourself. Um, and I will uh, say because I'm a busy working person like everybody else, I stepped on my iPad. And so uh, I, I look a little softer maybe than usual. Uh, anyway, it is my honor to be here with you today. Um, when I was asked to do this, I, you know, you always say, who's the audience? And and what do you want the takeaway to be? Uh, and I know you had a lot of uh, specific things on, on panels, but I just thought I would talk about, you know, I mean, when we think about how mental health policy gets set, um, I think part of that conversation um, 
should also be about you know the people who are who are making it and, and kind of the perspectives they bring uh, to try to address these issues. Um, so I will start just with my some of my own personal uh, history, and I have. Um, and then the more you think about it, the more it becomes uh, clear. Anyway, I am a, I am a, uh, and I'll say it, 60-year-old um, Latina lesbian social worker uh, who has also been a caregiver uh, a lot in my life, um, mostly caring for people at the end of their life. Um, in addition to having a, a, a fairly extensive background in mental health, I also uh, worked in hospice for a long time. Um, so both personally and professionally, I have a, uh, a lot of experiences, perhaps unfortunately, uh, with that. Um, but I had, you know, I cared for my grandmother as she died. I cared for my godmother as she died. Um, my sister-in-law died. Uh, my, my spouse's only sibling, um, and my, uh, and my, my, my mom and my dad. Um, so, and then my, my spouse, uh, is going through her second bout of, of, uh, cancer. Um, and this one has left her with a lot of mobility issues. Uh, so I, all, all of this, I approach. I think my ear pods are going. Um, all of this I approach from a, a very holistic perspective. We're talking about the person oftentimes who was struggling, um, but I see it as a larger system for families, for communities, um, and how we make the system work for everybody in trying to expand uh, service and, and dignity. Because uh, at the end of the day, I truly see that as my role, and hopefully all legislators see that, that our, our job is to break down barriers um, for dignity for people and expand access. Uh, so my, um, I will say I had, my, my, I had one maternal aunt, my dad's sister, uh, who was uh, pretty significantly um, bipolar. Um, and so she had six children. And so I watched my cousins and my family um, after the kids were my, my youngest cousin was probably in her early adolescence when my aunt became very ill. Um, and then it was, uh, and there was a, a document on KQED sometime back that as my oldest cousin, God rest her soul, she just died this last week, we buried her. Um, but just really struggling to get her the help that she needed. Um, oftentimes, you know, she would have to go on the streets. And in San Francisco, my, my aunts and cousins worked farmers markets up in Dow, California, who were farmers. Um, beekeepers, honey people were the sweet ones, we like to say. Uh, so, um, but then my aunt would disappear in the streets of San Francisco. And my, my cousin would struggle to find her. Uh, and then after finding her, take her to the hospital. Um, and oftentimes, uh, you know, was not able to, to keep her there because, uh, and as my, my cousin, it's a very poignant point she makes, she said, my mom wasn't sick enough to keep in the hospital, but she was sick enough to go out in the streets and get raped. She had a, a ongoing a delusional fantasy about uh, recruiting people to help make the world a better place through these, these five golden rings. Um, and so when she was off recruiting people, she was attacked uh, by a number of people and uh, pretty severely raped and beaten and ended up dying of HIV AIDS uh, contracted through that, that experience. So um, since her death, my cousin, as soon as I got into policy, my cousin has, you know, very um, uh, vigorously uh, talked to me about what she considered dignity and what she considered some of the real barriers in our system uh, to get people the help they need. Um, I, I didn't think about this recently, but my, my mom, her oldest brother, uh, my, my grandparents uh, immigrated from Mexico. Um, my my oldest uncle that I never met uh, was born in Mexico. My mom was the first one born here. But from the telling of their stories, he probably had some pretty significant mental health issues. Um, 
And when he went off into the military, uh, he came back the next day as a captain, which didn't make sense to anybody. And then he got on his bike and left. And that was the last anybody ever saw him. So I, you know, I, I know there was always that struggle of where is he? Where could he be? Um, I found papers at one point that I think he had spent some time in a state hospital uh, in Stanislaw County. Uh, and they lived in, in the Benicia area in the Bay Area. So that loss for my grandmother and, you know, and everyone just not, not, not quite knowing. And, and really at that point, um, being immigrants and having no uh, access to mental health, especially that was back in the 40s, 50s. Um, so that, and then, and then I will say uh, my, my first love, right? We all remember our first love. My first love, uh, her name was Chris. Um, and uh, she, I went to the military at 18. I should say that I spent four years in the United States military right out of high school. Um, and um, she exhibited some, you know, in retrospect, some symptoms earlier when we were in, in, uh, in high school and teenage years. Um, and we weren't we were not together uh, afterwards. But uh, I watched her struggle. She developed pretty uh, severe mental health issues uh, and her family had means and her they struggled to get her. Uh, care, but she never quite met the criteria uh, to be able to hold. And we and we know, right? If we can if we can keep people oftentimes longer than that three days, uh, we can get them stabilized so that then they can make better decisions uh, about what they want. Uh, and she was not quite thirty, and uh, we were. I remember I'll never forget we were having a, a party, and I invited her over for the next day, um, and she said, "No, I can't come. I got to get my hair cut." Um, and then I I heard uh, the next morning that she had. Um, laid herself in the, in the bathtub and she had cut all her hair off and shot herself in the forehead. Um, it did not take her life, but she, uh, yeah, I mean, it took her life, but she was on, on life support. Um, and so we always, uh, on 4th of July is when they harvested her organs. Uh, and, uh, and, and so people have sight because of her, people you know, have a heart because of her, um, but she never got the help that she needed. Uh, and I, you know, I, I stayed friends with her family afterwards and, um, and just, you know, the, the struggle that they had. So that's kind of my personal experience with mental health, just in my, in my own personal experience. Um, but I will say, uh, right out of high school, before I was done with high school, I got a job working in, um, I always knew I wanted to help people. I wanted to do something. Um, I got a job uh, at uh, Crestwood Manor uh, as a kind of a milieu manager, trying to help getting people up for meds when they needed them, um, lighting cigarettes. People could still smoke in facilities at that time. Um, and at that, you know, that wasn't, it was not a good model of care, but people were, people were safe in a facility. Uh, but that was more, it was, people were not probably coming out of there. But anyway, uh, I, I told the story when I, when I talked to Sigrid, things you don't, you come back to later, right? Just being, uh, being laid out with a, you know, a punch in the, in the, in the, in the stomach, uh, losing your air and laying on the floor, being surrounded by folks um, actively, uh, 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 in unwell states. Um, so from there, I went in the military. And then when I got out, I, I got my uh, bachelor's degree in psychology and I worked in a drug and alcohol treatment center. Uh, and I, you know, I saw the epidemic of, of uh, substance abuse go from heroin um, to crack cocaine to, method or to um, methamphetamine and then back to opioids now. So I, I have a significant amount of time working in substance abuse. And then we moved over uh, to, I did uh, dual diagnosis. That's how I got into mental health was doing uh, mental health work with addiction in a dual diagnosis setting. Um, and then I also did a lot of uh, um, 
there was a time when there was still insurance back in the 80s and 90s. And, and I was hired as a, a crisis worker to go out and evaluate people in the field and jails and in hospitals uh, to see if they met the criteria for uh, for a hold. Um, so I, after I, then I started working more in in healthcare and in hospice. Um, and then, yeah, and I and I will say, I was a kid who barely graduated high school. Uh, I, you know, I always had a smart mouth, but that that didn't always uh, end up me making the best decisions. Uh, the military helped with that because I did quickly realize that my smart mouth got me doing a lot of crawling on the ground and push-ups, and that was not the path to success. Uh, and I will always, uh, uh, the, I've made lifelong relationships in the in the military, and I also. Um, really develop what I call this internal locus of control, right? If you want to, uh, if you want to take, if you want to be effective, I think you need to be able to be first of all effective with yourself, uh, and not and not let somebody else uh, dictate outside uh, in how you react. Um, and certainly in my uh, work in substance abuse, I learned that people kind of expect and respect you to call bullshit for bullshit sometimes, um, and that we're all meaning making creatures, and people are trying to get their needs met. Uh, and we'll do all kinds of things to to achieve that. Um, and so I always think my my job is to try to do them in a in the healthiest way possible. But I got encouraged. Uh, I got my MSW, and then I got encouraged to get my PhD uh, and teach. And I I love teaching. I love uh, interacting with students, and hopefully you know preparing more people to go out in this field and and do good. Uh, so I got my PhD at important. Portland and Portland State. Um, and there I was asked to teach right away. And I love that. Uh, but I also, um, uh, I never wanted to be a professor who didn't have active ongoing experience. So I got a job in the Providence Center um, uh, in the ER. So I worked emergency room, social work. So, you know, you get overdose, you get crisis, you get domestic violence, you get car wrecks, you get death, whatever comes in. Um, and so you might see, I, I, I like a fast pace. Um, so after I got my, my uh, PhD, I got a job at Sac State. Um, and so that's how I ended up in Stockton. I, I grew up in the Bay Area and then in Turlock. Uh, and that's where my family still was. And my mom was ill. And so I kind of landed in Stockton because it was, I could drive to Sac State and work and I could go home to Turlock and take care of my mom. Um, my mom died. Uh, her, her last trip was to see me uh, do my my um, defense of my PhD. She was so excited. She made everybody call me doctor all the time, even in grocery stores. Um, but after she died, I, I couldn't do end of life care anymore. I just like, oh, it was too hard for me for a while. She was my research assistant during my, um, my dissertation where we looked at the intersection between um, Mexican American culture and our American healthcare systems culture as they intersect at, at end of life. Uh, so we went around the, the uh, around the, the Central Valley area, talking with families who had lost somebody as they died and traversed the healthcare system. Uh, so I, 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 I had my mom and the, um, sitting around tables, you just, you know, it's just a, a different way of hearing people's experience and really open people open up in, in different kinds of ways. Um, so after I was starting to teach, and then I just started working more in the community in Stockton uh, around um, mental health issues, uh, severe poverty, uh, worked with uh, St. Mary's uh, uh, Dining Hall and helped them develop a social service program. Um, I've always uh, supported students in their internships. As people know, if you have an MSW, you need uh, two years at least of, uh, of an internship. And so I could provide the supervision for that. Um, and then, so how do you get in policy, right? So, but, but you're working and I, so I was getting my hours for my LCSW um, and 
and working in a Latino organization and just hearing a lot of people like, you know, worried about immigration or, and depression. And, but a lot of it was created by the situations they were living in. And so after a while, you think, you know, I can keep talking to people and help, help them try to work through a broken system, um, but it, somebody needs to do something. So I, you know, and it, I don't mind what people's politics are. And he looks very good to me right now. But um, when George W. Bush won his second election, and that was when they were doing welfare reform, uh, the contract on or with America, however you like to think about it, uh, which was very um, frightening and disturbing for the most vulnerable and certainly uh, going into a faculty meeting with social workers uh, and all the faculty, everybody was like, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And it was just one of those times where like, you know, why are we sitting around worrying about what other people are going to do if we don't have the courage to get in the arena ourselves, right? We're trained in policymaking. We're trained in systems thinking. We're trained in working with people. Why aren't we running? And why aren't we teaching our students how to run and be effective, you know, policymakers? So yeah, I'm running for the next seat that comes up. Now, and then I thought, now I'm going to go to uh, Arkansas, run for for Senate because Hillary had just moved to New York. But my family talked me out of that. That was a crazy idea. Um but the first seat that came up was Stockton City Council. So I, you know, I threw my hat in the ring. And again, I was an outsider to politics, hadn't lived in Stockton forever. Um, I would have become, I did become the first Latina, the first lesbian. Uh, so a lot of kind of first going in, but it was just, and hopefully I've taught my students this forever. It's all about relationship, right? You can't, you can't do anything with people unless you have uh, a relationship. And so when people told me I couldn't win because I was too different, I just know you, if you know people and you get out and you talk with them and you shake hands and you listen, um, listen, 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 and try to uh, impact areas that people are really concerned their everyday lives. Um, so I was successful in running uh, and, and getting that, that seat. And every year uh, I had a, uh, and I just saw one of my first students the other day, we just got together, um, two, uh, two second year MSW students with me uh, through my entire time with City Hall. So we organized around, you know, crime reduction, uh, obesity, uh, literacy, whatever you could think of to try to uplift and improve communities. Um, we did. Uh, so that was a fantastic experience. Uh, you know, 2008 came. It wasn't so fantastic with the economy. Um, and then I ended up, uh, we ended up going into bankruptcy. Stockton was the uh, largest city uh, in the country at that time then to have, have to enter into bankruptcy. Um, but we had, you know, there, there was just, there was no money to meet basic resources. Uh, and so that was a very difficult decision. And as a Democrat, you know, being supported by labor, labor was very angry, of course. But I just, I, you know, that thing, you got to look yourself in the eye at the end of the day and think, am I just responsible to my friends or am I responsible to the 300,000 people who depend on me to make the right decisions for them? So, and I will say, if we hadn't done that, Stockton would still be trying to dig ourselves out of a hole rather than, you know, be having the ability to rise like a phoenix, uh, as, as I think we are now. Um, so then, you know, people said, oh, you should run for assembly. And I said, oh, you, you can't run for assembly. You're a, a, Democrat, well, labor's angry with you and, and you're in a city with bankruptcy. But again, I'm like, if you know the people and the people know you. So, um, so I won that assembly seat uh, and, and, and won four more times. And now I am, I'm in my final term in politics uh, and sitting in this uh, Senate seat. Uh, and I will say that uh, I love the Senate and it really feels like a culmination. I have served on 
business and professions. I have served on uh, natural resources. I have served on local government. I have served on energy. Um, I've served in a lot of, uh, of arenas, uh, but I've never served on the budget. So this year, um, Senator Pro Tem, uh, Tony Atkins made me budget chair of health and human services. So, wow. And what a year to be the chair of health and human services. Um, and it was, it was certainly drinking from a fire hose. And I hope I, you know, I, I hope I, I did us proud. Uh, and I'm very pleased uh, with the budget that we we're able to pass. So um, I want to talk a little bit about that and then some more about just my legislation. Um, but this year in the budget, and, and I will also say my entire time, in, and, I, and I had to leave my job, my professor job, when I uh, entered into the assembly in 2012. But I have always had MSWs with me um, as students in the Capitol. Uh, and including myself, we have five MSWs on my policy staff. Uh, so we, you know, so we are, we are very focused on, on uh, again, expanding dignity for people in all, in all kinds of ways. Um, but my last time here, I just really want to focus on uh, mental health uh, professionally. So um, with, the, uh, with the budget, uh, again, huge amounts of money, but I'd like to just kind of highlight some of the things we did. Um, but for uh, children and youth, behavioral health, $4.4 billion, right? And that is going to go, um, California is behind. We have been behind um, because it, you know, it is expensive to try to provide the care and and, you know, people don't like me to say this, but I, I, I don't stop. Uh, we have treated mental health like we've treated our forest, right? We went from clear cutting, cutting down old growth. We went, we locked everybody up if we didn't like the way they looked or talked or loved or whatever. And then we thought, oh, it's wrong. So then we went all the way to the other side. And we, you know, we didn't hold anybody against their will. And we then didn't take care of our forest. So we got forest fires having to do with climate changes, of course, as well. And then... Uh, mental health. I mean, we have fires on our streets. Uh, you know, I mean, people's people's lives, and and then and actual fires in, in a lot of the the, the homeless camps. Um, and I'm certainly not saying that everybody who was homeless uh, has a mental health issue, but we know that there's a uh, a large population um, that does. And and uh, and living on the streets for any significant period of time, you're going to encounter more more trauma. Um, that has lasting impacts on people's lives. Um, so $4.4 billion for uh, youth and family. Um, and that is going to be, we will work on standing up a whole, like any kid in the, in the state, what, any person in the state should be able to um, have a platform that you, that you can get an assessment and then refer to the, to the right person locally. So we're going to try to, we're sta- we are going to stand that up statewide, uh, but more mental health in schools, uh, having the, the plans do uh, more mental health, um, and then a, a lot for uh, on the mobile side, um, that's under youth and family. Um, and then one of the things that I am very excited about and really push for, um, I think Dr. Galley is going to speak later, and he, and he also, I just can't tell you what a, what a great partner Dr. Uh, Dr. Mark Galley has been, um, but over a billion dollars for infrastructure. Because I think we, I think we know, right? We don't have enough uh, capacity um, in our mental health space to be able to take care of, of all the people who need to be cared for. So I would like to encourage anybody. I, I was on a call today with the um, California Conference of Catholic Bishops, which was interesting. But they really want to be proactive and talk about the things that we can agree on and what we can work on. Um, and one of them is housing, and they talked about 
the bishop in in, uh, in Los Angeles called her and said, hey, you want a convent? So she said, it's a beautiful convent, 43, 43 uh, uh, room capacity on beautiful grounds. And they were able to transition that into uh, a place for uh, pregnant women who were living on the streets. Uh, and then and then ha- and then partner with Catholic charities to be able to do the wraparound uh, services for that. Um, so when we're talking about this behavioral infrastructure, right? We need we need workforce, we need mobile crisis, we need all of it, but we also need the build out of our supportive housing. We need the build out of step down. We need the build out of more acute facilities. We need, I mean, there's a lot that we need. So I am really uh, hopeful. Um, that we are going to uh, take this opportunity. Um, I know there was a, a question, my, my staff said a question earlier about like, like the prison in Susanville, um, state grounds were closing down. There's, there's one in my uh, area as well, the uh, DVI. Um, we, I know we are transitioning, I've been working on this for, forever, transitioning part of our fairgrounds into doing um, a continuum of care housing. Um, so there is a, a lot of excitement. So I would encourage everybody, whatever organization you're in, to start looking at space, looking at uh, abandoned buildings, looking at uh, places where it's already in a community. Um, and we know community settings are the best for people, right? Especially those with long time and, and persistent. Uh, they may never be able to live fully independently, but they can certainly live productive, productive lives. So um, we're excited about that, that infrastructure. Uh, and again, uh, mobile crisis um, which then kind of transits, and I can talk about this forever, but, and Dr. Galley will talk more about the budget, but uh, if you have questions about that, I am, I am glad to answer. And I just want to offer myself and my staff, they may hate me for this, uh, but if anybody has, runs into barriers trying to access some of that funding that should all be there, please let, let us know. Um, again, we're, we are good at kicking down barrier doors to be able to provide access to people who need care. Um, so, and again, these investments have been historic and, and, and long past due. So some of our legislation that we worked on this year, um, and again, seeing, seeing a real opportunity, right? I mean, there's, there's the, just the human toll of people driving around and just seeing things on the street but for humans, human beings on the street and living in ways that you think, I don't think, I don't think that's okay. Um, as a woman I talked with earlier today, she says, it, it's unconscionable that we have pregnant women suffering with health and mental health issues living on our streets. And it is, I think we have to get to that place where just say it is unconscionable um, that we, that, that this happens. Um, so this year, one of the things we worked on, right. Cause you, you always try to think of what's the big idea. What's the big idea we can do to really, you know, make things better for people. And I think everybody knows there's not big headline grabbers, right? It's just chipping away, chipping away, chipping away on it and trying to look at where, where is all this money going, right? Because we have been uh, with Prop 60 um, uh, Mental Health Services Act, we've been pushing a lot of money in uh, to the system. So one of the things that we identified is that the, um, uh, the mental health oversight and accountability didn't have a lot of a lot of teeth to be able to actually see where is all this money going in, uh, especially as it's working with uh, the full service partnerships. Those are the people who are, you know, need the most care. And we're bringing a lot of money into full service partnerships where they're supposed to be getting a full continuum. And clearly you can look you can drive around and see that's not always happening. Um, so uh, how, do, how do we, how do we fix that? So the governor just signed yesterday. We're very excited. SB 465. Um, I think that's the number uh, that will say that, they have to get the data 
uh, it gets reported to us. They, and then we were able to make decisions about how we can tweak things, how things can be more data-driven, how uh, we see where the gaps are, we see where the, you know, where things are really working, and we can get our, our arms around all this money that's going out, um, especially before more goes out, uh, to be able to see how, how do we use it the most effectively. And we know not every county is the same, right? So who's doing it well? Um, who's not doing it so well? And how do we really uh, be responsible for the money that is also already being funded? One of the other things uh, that we worked on through the budget, and then I, we did some policy last year, uh, is maternal mental health. Um, making sure that women, we know postpartum is a, depression is a huge issue, especially you know, for those who, for those who are on, on Medi-Cal. Um, and so to make sure that they have a full year uh, of, uh, of full services um, a year after the, the birth of a child, um, and even including a mental health care, including uh, doula care, um, and really being able to look at, especially women of color who have much higher degrees of uh, infant mortality. Um, and we know postpartum depression is real. And again, we come at this like, if if a, if a mom can't be healthy, then it's very hard for her to be, you know, to provide everything her child needs. And so this whole then system of how do we how do we wrap the system around people, right? How do we how do we meet people where they are, and 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 wrap the care around them in a way that then allows them to be able to make uh, their best decisions. Um, another bill that we did that that didn't make all the way, but we're going to come back to it is really looking at. Can we expand um, some of the LPS criteria, that's 516, um, to be able to include the ability to make um, health decisions, right? Because if you have a, you know, you have a bad abscess and you can't make a good decision after you, you know, you're placed on a 5150 and then, you know, if, if you could lose a foot, right? So would that be a decision? But it can't be something related to their mental health, but just their ability to make mental, uh, their medical decisions. So to try to get them stabilized enough um, to, so to include making health decisions uh, into that, the criteria for, for LPS. Um, and then one of the other things we worked on, because, you know, th with uh, this, this last year with a lot of, um, with the murder of George Floyd, um, and a lot of people thinking, hmm, should police be, you know, the ones responding to a lot of these situations, um, and especially mental health situations, uh, and where there's a lot of stories about, you know, bad things happen sometimes when police have to show up to deal with an issue that, you know, it probably is not in their, their wheelhouse to deal with. Um, so, you know, now people are saying, Oh no, hire a social worker, not a, not a police officer. Hey, I want to see, there should be some parity in, um, in, in people's salary. Uh, but also uh, it was, was going to be very hard to say who these new people were going to be, who are going to be so social workers. Um, I've been working forever on title protection. Maybe before I leave, I can do that because anybody can call themselves a social worker now. Uh, but to be able to say, if you, if you, you know, if you are in a, one of those mobile crisis with a, with a police support, the supervisor of those people must be somebody with a mental health license. And we thought that was a way uh, to be able to provide some accountability um, again, for all this new mobile money that's going out. And we want, we want mental health workers to, to partner with public safety. It makes sense. Um, but we also know that they should be supervised probably by somebody who is a, a licensed mental health therapist. Um, so that's some of the, the policy that we're working on this year. Oh, I should say Laura's law. That was one of the, the big ones. Um, uh, people know what Laura's law is advanced outpatient um, treatment. Uh, that, so we expanded that statewide. So now 
every county, they at least have to have a hearing to say a public hearing, why they don't, why they're going to opt out versus um, opting in. So we, uh, many counties now are adopting that. And we hope that is going to make a significant amount um, of, uh, of, of, of impact for people. Um, so, and, and then I'll just go back to um, what we see in real life, right? So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mom, I have a 13, an adolescent child. Um, and growing up, it was just, you know, my dad was a, a, a helper, right? He always wanted to help. He was a farmer, um, not a well-educated man, but a huge heart. And so we always had, um, he had a, a, a produce store, a produce market. Um, but, you know, there was always somebody living in the back who either struggled with mental health or uh, ID or DD or uh, substance abuse, um, something. But, you know, you help people. That's just what you did. And it is just and I'm sure everybody who's listening in has this experience. You're driving along and you see something and, and what do you see? Your, your kid looks at you like, what should we do, mom? And then, you know, there's not a lot, you know, that an individual can do anymore, that it's a bigger system change and that we need to do, we need to do better by people, right? We need to be able to provide care. We need to meet people where they are. Um, and certainly we, we're, we are very supportive of autonomy, but again, uh, everybody you see on the street, is part of a family system, is part of a community system. Um, so in addition to treating the, the, the patient, the identified person as, uh, as an individual deserving of dignity and respect, I think uh, we, all, we all deserve that too as well. And so the families of folks um, and just people who are wanting to, wanting, wanting to do better, right? Um, so that leads then of course to, to challenges about holding people against their will. And when do you do that and when do you not? Um, and so I, in, in, I am in my last term. And so most of the time, you know, people still have to have to, uh, raise money, I'll just say. And so people start accounts for, um, I know like they're going to run for Lieutenant governor, but they don't have any intentions or they're going to run for treasurer, but, but they're not really, it's just, it's a, it's a place. So I thought, well, I don't want to just have a pretend place. I'm not going anywhere else. Um, so I'm, I'm going to do a ballot initiative. And um, so that's what we have. We have a, a ballot initiative, like, you know, repairing our, our, our damaged mental health system. Um, and, and we have not specifically decided what exactly we're going to do with it. And it will probably go on the ballot in, in 24 if we do something. Um, but some of the things that we're talking about is the reform of LPS, right? I think the public is now ready to have different conversations. Um, but, you know, a lot of times it, you'll put something on the ballot, like Prop 65, and there'll be a cost associated with it. We have so much money in the system right now, it doesn't feel to me like I can be going out asking the public for them to pay more. Um, and especially, I don't think we can ask the public to pay more until we, we have built out this continuum of care. Um, so I think that's where we have to start uh, in doing that. But I will say that I am so open um, uh, for people's ideas, for people's input. We work a lot with uh, Randall Hagar with the uh, um, Psychiatric Association. Um, we have a lot of partners out there. And so we're, we're, we're brainstorming and um, I think there's a lot of interest. Hospitals are interested because again, law enforcement, hospitals, places that, that shouldn't really have to be the, the end stop for people um, with significant and persistent mental health issues. But just to say, don't just think I'm interested in that because if we go back on the other side, don't forget about all that money that we put it into the system for early intervention, for mobile crisis, for youth and families, for um, 
uh, doing more with plans, um, uh, the, the, the healthcare plans. Um, so it's, 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 so I don't, I, I do not, I'm not going to tell you right now, I know exactly what the ballot initiative will be, but I'm telling you, we're gathering data. We're seeing where the holes are. Um, we'll probably do some polling about, you know, what people's appetite is. Um, but first we gotta, we gotta, we gotta fill the system out a little bit more, um, before we decide, um, who's going to be there. Cause we know there's also a huge issue right now with our, our state hospitals being, um, compounded um, with people who are unable to stand trial right now. Uh, has, those people should be being treated at the counties, but the counties are too full. They don't have space for it. Um, Stanislaus County, there's not one adolescent bed uh, for psych bed. Um, so we need to do a better job of, again, making sure there's resources for people, but hopefully that people don't get so ill if we can do early intervention. We know early intervention is the, the, the total key. And we know the pandemic has been very hard on people. Um, and we know the stigma that goes along with asking for help we're hoping is, is reduced now. Um, oh, I should also say, we're putting a lot of funding into workforce development because maybe you were thinking out there, okay, Susan Eggman, we're gonna have all this extra help but who's going to provide the services, right? There's a, there's a, a dearth. I, I talked with San Joaquin County and Stanislaus County. They're all fighting over the same clinicians uh, to be able to hire people. So we're, so workforce development is going to be a, a big component. Um, and also we're going to really try to work on, because we were also able to do more for funding in the ID and the DD population. But those, those providers, oftentimes that there's not a ladder uh, for them to be able to get more education and training and then being able to, you know, move into higher positions and perhaps make more money. So you have a lot of people who leave the field because they just can't, they need to be able to pay the bills. Um, so really looking at workforce development um, in, in a way that people can develop along uh, with, with their job. So uh, we acknowledge that remains a huge issue across uh, our healthcare uh, spectrum, but especially as it relates to mental health. So please encourage, all young people you know are people who are you know thinking about coming back into the workforce um, to go to go into human services, right? I mean, we are we are it's it is it is fantastic work. Uh, we all know it is challenging, um, but we know that it's you know if you can really impact and touch people's lives, um, then you know that you've done your part to keep this this world spinning on its axis. Um, and I, I I personally believe that we all have a, a responsibility and role in that, and, you know, helping make things better. Um, looking out for each other and just kind of, you know, going back to the basics. Uh, and again, so as a social worker, right, I am all about self-determination, about dignity and respect, about, you know, setting, setting the table, setting the environment so that people then can, can rise on their own. You don't need to do anything for people, but if you can, if you can make this, the, um, if you can make the system work, um, it is just, it is just so much better uh, for families. Um, so I'm going to think about, no, I'm gonna, I think I think I'll stop right there. I mean, clearly I could talk forever um, and see if anybody has questions. Um, so we do have a question. How could removing the exclusion for CMS fund for IMD? Um, I, I believe it will, and I believe it can. Um, so that was a, a question. So I, so I should say, Cal AIM, and I'm sure you all know about Cal AIM, um, but being able to... Uh, we're that that's got it's got to be a major part of the the component about um, removing the CMS uh, exclusion to be able to um, pay for IMD uh, and and have it pay for long term residential. So we're I mean that's that's the plan right to get the infrastructure 
to get that a plan. And Cal AIM um, hopefully is going to be the final transformation. Um, we thought we were going to be working on that two years ago, but the pandemic came. And so it's been, it, but it, it is coming. Um, and I, again, I can tell you, I worked, I, I met yesterday Zoom with HealthNet, who's one of, going to be one of my plan providers. And, uh, and that was my question to them. I, so how is it going to be different? How are you going to meet these needs? How are you going to, uh, you know, have housing for, for folks? So yes, that is a plan. Um, and, and we are, we are actively uh, working on that. So um, any other questions anybody has? No, Susan Eggman is not running for governor. Um, yes, we can't, we won't tell you about Susan Eggman for governor. We're a nonpartisan you know, we can't get into that. <laughs> somebody, somebody wrote that. No, we're not doing it. We're not doing that. <laughs> uh, Senator Eggman, thank you so much for joining us today. This is great. This is amazingly personal. I think gave people a real insight into what it made, what motivates you and your legislative agenda. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And for those of you who are watching, we say thank you very much for watching, and we will talk to you soon. The next panel will be up shortly. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.